You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Thank you, Ethan. Hey, good morning again. Hey, listen, we want to bring your attention just to a few things. We have these uh, uh, new, new little uh, uh, cards that we have in the seat pockets pockets in front of you, and, and they are, there are actually three of them. One is a connect card for a way that we can get to know you. They're replacing our white cards, and then serve together, a way that you might want to serve. You can fill that out, and this time of year, the most important to me is water baptism, and so this next weekend, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to have water baptism right here in all three of our services, so we want people just to join in and be part of that celebration. If you've never been baptized in water before. It's a great step in the process of following Jesus. And so we want to invite you to do that. Fill out any of these cards and you can drop them in the boxes before you go out of this building. They're right in the back on the two tables. So um, we just want you to join in and be part of what God is doing in his celebration in our lives and what we get to do. And I want to take just a little time right now. I'm going to talk about Jesus in just a moment. But before I talk about Jesus, let's take some time And let's pray to him. Let's do that. Father, we just thank you today for um, giving us the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And that our hearts would be open today. Lord, we would experience your amazing and wonderful peace. Lord, we just thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. Lord, we just celebrate what you've done for us. Let us be thoughtful today. Let us take inventory, evaluate our own hearts in light of of the great sacrifice that you've provided. In Jesus' name we pray, and we say together, amen. Well, welcome to Palm Sunday morning, and I really am. I'm so glad that you're here. It was this morning, a few thousand years ago, that moved Jesus into the last few days of his earthly life. Again, around the world, it's called Holy Week. Out of all the weeks of the year, this is the one that's labeled Holy Week. And what we do and what we get to do this next week is walk with Jesus through his passion. Know what he's taken on for us. Something that we could not do for ourselves, he's done for us. And that is he secured our salvation. And so we go into this next week and, and we know that when Jesus came into that city, the city of Jerusalem, on this Palm Sunday, he was almost there. Our salvation was so close but not yet completed. You know, I think there were th- two things that will help us better understand the forces at play during that last week of the life of Jesus. Two things that give us a little context about what Jesus was facing and what Jesus was really all about. The first is the disposition of the crowd. And what was the attitude of the crowd during that time? And the second and most important is what was the disposition of Jesus? What was his attitude? What was his focus? What was he headed into doing You know, in the Gospel of John and chapter 6, we we get this glimpse, this prophetic glimpse at what Jesus would face in the last week of his life. And I find it so interesting when you study through the Gospels and you look at the life of Jesus and early on in his ministry, you're going to come across places that you might read and you'll say, that sounds familiar. Why does that sound so familiar to me? Well, John chapter 6 is one of those passages that I read, and I I think to myself, it sounds so familiar, and the reason it is is because it's giving us a, a glimpse, a look at what Jesus would actually face in the last week of his life. He was going to face a crowd. He was going to face some people during the time of his greatest and deepest passion. 
Understanding a crowd, the volatility, the appetite of a crowd, I think is important for us to really understand what Holy Week is all about. See, in the first part of John chapter 6, Jesus is being followed by this enormous crowd of people, and a question comes up. The question is, how are we going to feed all these people? I mean, look how many people have come to our place, our place, our, our, our time. How, how many have come for lunch? And so what Jesus does is he, um, he wants to feed these people. And one of the disciples finds a little boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish, and they make enough. Jesus breaks the bread and breaks the fish and makes enough for 5,000 to eat. So how does the crowd respond to being fed in a miraculous way? And it's always interesting to me how crowds respond. And this is how the crowd responded to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Does that have a familiar ring to it? Because it's only going to be a year later that he's going to experience some very similar things. He's going to have some more interaction with a a different crowd. This was the glimpse of what was to come. In verse 4, it says this in John chapter 6. It says, the time was the time of Passover. The season was Passover, the Passover festival. You see, it would only be a year later that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So one year would pass from this point to the celebration of Palm Sunday. Jesus is not persuaded by the crowds. What he does is he goes away. He spends time by himself. He spends time in a relationship with his Father in heaven. What he's doing is he's preparing his heart for what is to come. But the crowds continue to chase after Jesus. It says that they wanted to find him. They looked for him day and night. And they came upon him and he began to speak because they wanted their stomachs full. They knew that they would be empty again. They knew they would be hungry again. That's what happens when you just feed a lot of people. They just keep coming back over and over again. There was an immense fear that they would go hungry. And I think we experience some of those same fears when our appetites aren't fed. There's that sense of emptiness. There's that sense of of lacking joy and fulfillment. And this is what the crowd was doing. They were following Jesus because they wanted their appetites fed. And so they would go after him, and they would keep coming, and the crowds would find Jesus again, and and they wanted food, and Jesus tells them this. He begins in this amazing discourse. He says, you're looking for food that cannot satisfy you. He said, if you're actually looking for me, you need to know this about me. I am the bread of life, and all who feed upon me, they will be satisfied. They will not be hungry again. And of course, we know he's speaking of our spiritual condition the insatiable appetite that we, we have can only be filled through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says something that shocks the whole crowd. In fact, this is where his popularity just began to plummet. He says, and I want you all to know this, really for you to experience life, you need to eat my body and you need to drink my blood. Now, can you imagine hearing that and what the crowds were thinking at the time? And and, and they respond to that as well. Uh, Jesus says, this is the bread in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread, he's speaking of himself, will live forever. 
How did the crowds take all of this? What did they think when Jesus spoke this way? In verse 60 of John chapter 6, it says, On hearing this, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Does this put you off? How do you feel about this? And then, if you see, he goes on, if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit of life. Now, now I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't do something here. He, he doesn't chase after them. He doesn't soften his message to make it more crowd-friendly. He doesn't offer them a discount on membership into the Jesus Club. He doesn't do any of that. He tells them the truth. He doesn't soften things. And it's at this point that many of the disciples begin to fall away. Those that were following before, they heard this message. They heard how difficult, how hard it was, and they no longer followed Jesus. Jesus seems to be okay with all of this. Okay that his popularity has just taken a nosedive. Because what Jesus cares about isn't the disposition or the size of the crowd. What he cares about is the level of commitment that his followers have. See, what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6, when he was talking about life and the Spirit, when he was talking about him being the bread of life, he, he was bringing our soul, he was bringing us into account for who we are. That we stand before God as sinners. And that we can't help ourselves. And Jesus is saying, I'm the solution. I'm the redemption. He was calling us into account. You know, it's hard to be called into account, isn't it? It's never comfortable. It's humbling. We don't like it. We like to be independent. We like to be people of our own means. We like to do the things that we want to do. But Jesus is saying, if you've been following me for reasons of popularity up to this point, follow me no more, and I'll make sure you won't follow me. If you're not in this, if you're really not all in this, I'm going to say some things that are going to blow you away. I'm going to say some things that are going to be hard on you. And then you see this wonderful disposition of Jesus. It was so different than the crowd that followed him in John chapter 6. So different than the crowds that followed him a year later on Palm Sunday. And maybe so different than the crowds that follow him today. Listen to the direction that Jesus would be going. He says this in Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 through 19. He says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over into the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, this is getting real. This is getting personal. Jesus isn't talking about something that will take place in a year. He's talking about something that's going to take place in just a few days. And if you didn't pack up a year before when Jesus said, eat and drink, eat my body, drink my blood, you might be getting cold feet right here. 
You might be wondering, man, what did I get myself into? Because we know at least one disciple had already made the decision to exit stage left. We know that Judas had already had it in his mind that he wasn't going to follow Jesus Christ anymore. He heard this thing about eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. He saw how Jesus treated Zacchaeus and Judas being a zealot. That was the worst kind of enemy. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He worked. He was a hireling for the Roman government. Government, the Roman Empire, someone that Judas disdained, or that, that Judas disdained was would be Zacchaeus. And so Judas has already checked out, just needed to close the deal a few days later. So comparing the disposition of the crowd and the disposition of Jesus really enhances our understanding of the spiritual and emotional forces and climate that was at work. The crowd was selfish and fickle. Jesus was selfless and resolved. The Bible says, For the joy that was set before him, he would endure the cross. And if you stop to think what he meant when he said joy, he was speaking of you. He was speaking of me. We are the joy that was set before him. And then you read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And this is what we call the triumphal entry. This is the initiation of Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. And Matthew describes it like this. He says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and their colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet he's speaking of there is Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The crowd gathers again. While others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds once again answered, no, this is Jesus. He is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You're getting a little indication, a hint about the disposition and the mindset of a crowd. They saw somebody that they could actually capitalize on, maybe even politically leverage against the Roman oppression. Because what they call Jesus here is not Lord, is not Savior. He's not the Redeemer. He's not God in flesh. He is a prophet to them. He just happened to show up this day. A few things to know about this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem through the East Gate or called the Golden Gate. This was prophesied once again in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's also the gate that Jesus will come through when he returns again, spoken of in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. An interesting side note. 
It's when the Ottoman Empire overtook uh, Jerusalem. What they did is they went about taking the Golden Gate, the Golden Gate here that Jesus went through, and they said, we don't want the Savior of the Jews to come through here. We don't want the Savior of the world to come through here again. So what did they do? In 1541, Solomon the Magnificent seals it, as if that's going to keep Jesus out. But he seals it, and what they do is they put a graveyard in front of those doors, those gates, Because they know good Jews aren't going to walk across the dead. You see, there were already forces at play there trying to keep Jesus out. But it's impossible because at his second coming, he's going to come through those gates again. The palm branches and the song that were sung are significant. Because palm branches or palm fronds were the ancient custom of hailing a conquering or victorious king. The song comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Once again, it's a prophetic utterance of what would happen on this particular day. And so prophecy is being fulfilled. One more thing that's important to point out here, and that's the activity of the crowd. You see the palm branches and the song, I don't think were purely motivated or devoted to Jesus Christ. This was just as much of a protest as it was anything else. Because what was happening there is the people were saying, hey, we have our king, and they were flying in the face of Roman oppression and Roman conquest. They wanted to be their own people. They wanted to rule themselves, but the Roman government was in charge. And during Passover, what happened is that city swelled with a population that normally is at 600,000. It could go to 4 million in about a week. And so you know that the Roman officials are nervous. They're on edge. So in a lot of ways, they back off when the Jews begin to worship or sing Hosanna Uh, to Jesus. What are the Jews saying? Many in the crowd were saying, see, he's our king. You're not our king. We are sovereign. They were flying in the face of their oppressors. This is a, a crowd protest. What the crowd said about Jesus was absolutely and entirely accurate. He is the king of glory. But why they said it and what they did was really suspect. Their motivation wasn't pure. It wasn't totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Remember John chapter 6? Remember what it says there? It says, and he is our king. We want to make him our king as long as he feeds us and does for us what we want him to do. He's our king. But woe to the person who lets that crowd down. Who doesn't fulfill their expectations. And for this Palm Sunday, this group of people, it took only about three and a half days for them to turn into a mob. You know, there's been a lot of research done. It's fascinating to me about how crowds work, especially when there's an affinity, especially when there's a common cause, and a crowd gets together and gets incited. There there are things that happen that wouldn't normally take place especially if the crowd's intentions are, are violent. If the crowd's intentions are to do harm, a crowd can turn to violence, and psychologists say, just by a simple light 
of the fuse. It doesn't take much. It just takes some utterances, a little act of violence. And what happens is, is, is sad because what happens is people begin to lose their individual values and principles and get sucked up into the action of a crowd. Now imagine what Jesus faced. Imagine what Jesus went through this last few days of his life. The crowd again gathers just a little bit later after singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They're together again three, three and a half days later. And now Jesus, when they look at him, hasn't fulfilled their expectations. So what does it take for that crowd to turn into a mob? It takes just a a whisper. Someone just in the crowd says, crucify him. Just, Just crucify him. He hasn't done what we've expected him to do. He really isn't our king. He really isn't our Lord. Crucify him. The crowd was so disappointed in what they thought would come to them through Jesus Christ, that they let the bad guy go and they killed the good guy. You see, this is the disposition of the crowd. And they collide in Jesus' life on that day. It's remarkable when you see how different the dispositions of Jesus was compared to the disposition of the crowd. What was important to Jesus that last week What was important to him as he traveled through those last few days of his earthly life, earthly ministry? I thought of a few. Number one is this, Jesus pressed into intense prayer. When Jesus prayed, he prayed to do the will of his Father. Listen, this this is crunch time for Jesus, and amazingly, he doesn't hold on. He lets go. He says, not my will, but the will of my Father. That's incredible. That's incredible because usually... When people know they're facing death or they're close to death, they don't let go. They cling on to. They hold tighter to. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming to that hour where I'm going to die for the sins of the world and I am going to surrender. I am going to let go for the salvation of the world. I'm going to let go. John 17, 4 Jesus says this, I've, I brought you glory, Father, on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. You know what he's speaking of? He's speaking of the mission that his Father had given him. The mission is coming to an end, and God is being given glory. That what's happening here is Jesus is saying, this isn't all that I've done. This is God. This is about you. This is about giving you glory. Jesus said on the cross a few days later, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The mission that you have given me, Father, is perfectly completed. Jesus also prayed for his followers. That's amazing. Now, that's, that, that's selfless. That's something that's full of what you see here is radical love. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That, that's us. That all of them may be one. That they may be one, Father, so as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. By the way, this is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. 
And what does he do? He's speaking in this last hour of his life. He's speaking of his mission and giving God glory. He's speaking of his passion for his people, for us. These are the things that come to mind. And I, I think to myself, how would I be living in the last few days of, of, of my life? Would I, would I be giving God glory? Would I, would I be passionate about the people and the relationships that God has given me? See, Jesus prays for the wholeness or the unity in his followers and, and, and that our efforts, when they're broken in relationship, would be reconciled. Jesus says, let there, let there be wholeness. Let there be unity. Let them get along with one another. And if they don't get along with one another, let them work at getting along with one another. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 tell us. It says, now that we've been reconciled to the Father, we have this responsibility, and that is to reconcile with each other and reconcile others to Jesus Christ. That we would be those great mediators. That we would be those ambassadors of Jesus Christ. When things aren't going the way that we think they should go, or when things seem to be falling apart, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility isn't to follow the whims of a crowd. It's to hold tight and follow the direction and disposition of Jesus Christ. To keep the main thing the main thing, and that's Jesus. What we believe is that Jesus is our salvation, that the Bible is infallible word of God. The Holy Spirit gives us power to make disciples who make disciples for Jesus. So Jesus enters this time of intense prayer, and there's something else he does. Jesus shows his radical commitment to righteousness. He does this in a display that seems to be pretty angry. And you read this and you're thinking, whoa, where did this come from? And by the way, what we're going to read is actually the second time Jesus purges the temple. He was there a couple years prior and did the same thing. It tells you something about the jealousy he has for his father's house, for a house of prayer, for things that really matter. Jesus steps up in Luke chapter 19, verse 45. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching and preaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all of the people hung on his every word. You know what's interesting to hear to me? It's, this, is, this is pretty dramatic. What made Jesus so angry? He turned over the tables in the church. Uh, was it the money in the church? When you think about it, money isn't a bad or a good. It's a matter of how we use it. So it really wasn't all about money. What set Jesus off were the money changers. What set Jesus off were actually the priests that were to be overseeing the house of worship. You see, what was taking place there, as I said earlier, is this this place had swollen in population from 600,000 to about 4 million. And guess what happens? The eyes of the money changers light up. They know that they're going to make a living right there in those two weeks that will last them the whole year. And so what they do is they take advantage of vulnerable travelers. They take advantage of people who are poor. They take advantage of people who just show up and they need to change their money. So what do they do? They 
triple and quadruple the cost of the exchange. They, they hurt the people. Their exchange is exorbitant at exorbitant rates. And to make matters worse, the priests were in on it. The priests were getting a cut of the action. So the, the money changers would make their money. You could imagine the den of thieves getting together off to the side and pulling out the priest's cut. It wasn't just money. It wasn't money here that made Jesus angry. It was that people were being taken advantage. That his righteousness flared. The very people he would die for. Jesus was jealous for people. And that they not be taken advantage of. I don't know if you've ever experienced what it's like to go somewhere and be a traveler and know that someone's taking advantage of you. I mean... I go to the airport and they charge me $5 for a bottle of water. And I'm thinking, isn't this where all of it comes and goes from right in here? I mean, isn't it? Don't, didn't they just bring it in like right around in that port over there? I mean, didn't it just show up? And so how many hands did it change actually before it got to this store to make it $5? You ever feel that? You just feel absolutely powerless. Jesus was advocating for the powerless. He was standing up. When he's tipping over these tables, he's standing up for people who are capitalizing on their weakness, on their vulnerability. And it makes him angry. Jesus also spent time with close friends in that last week of his life. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 18 through 19, it says, He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. What did Jesus do? Jesus spent one last meal with his friends. The place that he wanted to be in this time of turmoil, this time of passion and heartache, was that he wanted to be with close friends. I kind of know how he feels. You might even know how he feels. When you go through one of those wrenching moments of life where it seems like the whole world is turned against you and you look around and think, okay, who's standing in my corner and whoever it is, I want to spend time with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to have a meal with you. If you've ever gone through broken relationship, if you've ever gone through a a difficult financial time in life, if you've ever gone through sickness and even death, it's those close friends that bring a a salve, a a, a healing oil to our lives, to our relationship. I I know what that feels like, and and, and I, I love that kind of closeness, to have those kinds of friends. Jesus takes his disciples, his friends with him, and He takes a time to share and pour out his heart. He talks about his future. He talks about their future. Some of what he talks about is uncomfortable because he speaks of Judas' betrayal. He, He looks at Peter in the eyes and he says, you're going to do the same. You're going to betray me. Those are hard things to hear, hard things to say, but it was in a safe place. It was with good friends. And I want to encourage you, if you're going through that difficult time, Find a place around the table for good friends. Have you made a place in your heart for good friendships? I would say today would be a difficult day to do life alone by yourself. 
And there's a lot at stake. Sharing a meal together was a sign of the deepest kind of relationship. Do you have a table reserved for your closest friends? People that you can laugh with, people you can cry with, people you can share life with. Do you, do you have that? Isn't it kind of interesting? It seems like with everything we have in the world, we're more connected. And, and people who know what's going on culturally say, no, we're less connected. We need friendships. We need them all the time, but especially when we go through difficult times. And the last thing I see here that Jesus did in that last week of his life is Jesus took care of his family. I love this. While Jesus was on the cross, he, he saw his mother watching him die. I can't imagine how excruciating that was. In John chapter 19, verses 25 and tw- through 27, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and, and Mary of Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, John the disciple took her into his home. In the last breath that Jesus has, he takes care of his mother. See how painful that must have been, a a mother watching her son being nailed to a cross, the ridicule, to see the brutality her son was enduring, to hear and see his agony. And how painful that must have been for Jesus to look down and see his own mother and the pain in her eyes, the desperation in her eyes, what was being transferred just by the look or the glance of eyes had to speak volumes. I remember a time when I was in a lot of pain and I thought I was in a ton of pain and I looked at my mom and I thought, oh man, she's in more pain than I am. That's really the heart of a mom. Jesus says, dear woman, here's your son and to the disciple John, here's your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his own home. The pain Jesus felt, I I can't fully understand, but Jesus let her know just how important she was in his life. Notice that Jesus doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. Isn't that a little odd? It would be, but if we understand what was going on there, it might become a little clearer to us in that the term woman was a term of respect, but it was also a term of separation. That what he was saying to his mother is this, you're not only now looking at your son first, you're looking at your Savior first. I am now your Savior. What you're watching happen is bringing salvation to you. Jesus, with love in his heart, the last person he talks to was his mother. That says something about how important family relations are. What is it that that, that you hear family say when they're separated? What is it that you often hear when, when families lose a loved one? I hear it often. And what I usually hear is this. I wished I would have spent more time with them. I wished I would have said I love you more. 
Those are usually the things that come from the mouths of the bereaved. Those are the things that come from the heart that's grieving for loss. So the instruction I get from this is bring your family together. (laughs) Spend time with each other. Some of us don't have a biological family around, but if you look around this room, you have brothers and sisters in the faith that you can spend time with. There are families that we have, families that we can spend time with, to share our life with. All of us have families. Again, maybe not biological, but they're still family. They're still there. And that's why I think we are called oftentimes a family of God. So here is a place in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. Over a cup of coffee, we can spend time with each other. Do this quickly. Do this soon. If you haven't told a family member or a close, close friend that you love them, take time to do that. I think their hearts will be blessed and I know yours will. So what do we do? In the days that are ahead of us, we choose to follow Jesus. What I hope happens is we leave this place and we walk in to the most holy of weeks is that we don't give in to the disposition of the crowds around us because crowds are shouting and yelling all kinds of things right now. But you would surrender to the disposition of Jesus Christ. That you would follow Him and you would follow Him alone. That's really the great message of Palm Sunday is that Jesus stayed the course. He remained faithful for our salvation. I want to read in closing just a reflection I had this week. I was reading John chapter 6 and reading Matthew chapter 21 and was thinking about the crowds and thinking about me being part of a crowd. And this is what I wrote down. We're asking him to feed us. And we don't hear him asking us to feed on him. To drink from him. To eat from him. To learn from him. Our appetites scream out to be fed. They demand our undivided attention. Robbing us of the satisfaction which comes when we step out of the noise of our own wants and we listen. We listen for that invitation, his kind, his penetrating call, come to me. Why do I hesitate? Why do I hold back? What is it that is so precious that I hold on to with the grip of ten men? not willing to relinquish to the Christ who speaks to me in a voice that never shames, that never condemns, who visits me and sometimes says nothing. It's just the assurance of his presence that settles me, that holds me in place. And then the visit ends with a few more quietly spoken words. I will give you rest. He will give you rest. Would you bow your head? Father, we just thank you for being so gracious to us, caring for us.
We ask today that we would experience your presence, that you would teach us in these next few days so that when we meet again, our hearts are full to overflowing and we're able to, with great confidence, say in a loud, joyful voice, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Bring us to that place. Fill us. Satisfy us. Lord, those things that hold us back, our own appetite, speak to that this week. Speak to the things that keep me from moving into your grace, from experiencing your rest, from knowing your presence, even in a greater way. Speak to us. Lord, we give ourselves to you, our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.